Hello, everyone. This is Chris from the future of when the rest of this podcast episode was recorded. Have you ever had a day where no matter how hard you try, you cannot say the right thing? You always substitute something else? For me, yesterday, that was saying total solar eclipse every time I meant total lunar eclipse. Those are not the same. For me, a couple days ago, that was constantly saying, writing down and then recording, deadlock, wherever I meant data race. Those are not the same. So, throughout the rest of this episode, anywhere you hear me say deadlock, just mentally substitute in data race. Sorry about that. And now into the much mistaken episode. Hello, I'm Chris Kreitchew, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is episode 22, Send and Sync. There are a few major parts of Rust we haven't covered yet, including one of the most important parts of Rust's promise, safe concurrency. So today we're going to dive in and talk about the two traits that are the most important part of Rust's story for enabling safe concurrency, send and sync. First, a little background. Multi-threaded processing has become increasingly important over the last couple decades because our ability to speed up single-threaded processing has effectively hit a wall starting in the mid-2000s. We can make things go faster, but it takes a lot of power and it generates a lot of heat, and that makes it hard to speed up our programs just by running the processor faster. So starting in the mid-2000s, the computer industry started adapting to that problem. The adaptation was to allow for multi-threaded and multi-processor approaches. And at least in principle, that lets us parallelize parts of whatever we're working on. But there's a problem. Parallelizing things effectively is hard. Parallelizing things safely is even harder. And it's hard in two and it's hard in at least two ways. One of them, Rust really cannot help us with, but one of them it, it can. Rust cannot help us with designing algorithms well for parallelization. It can't even help us identify which specific problems are amenable to parallelization. For that, we still just need good old computer science reasoning. But on the other hand, Rust can help us make sure that the design we implement is safe once we do identify candidates for parallelization. In fact, Rust can do more than just help a little. Rust can actually eliminate whole classes of parallelization bugs, which are common in other languages, and it can do so at compile time. Of course, if we take a step back, this is basically true of all the ways Rust helps us. Rust doesn't tell us how to write an algorithm that performs linearly instead of quadratically. It makes it easier not to shoot ourselves in the foot with memory errors when we write our algorithm, whether we perform linearly or quadratically. The same thing goes for parallelism. And that gives us the context for why we care about send and sync. So what are they and how do they work? The first thing we need to understand is that both send and sync are what are called marker traits. And this is one of several things I skipped over in my previous discussion of traits all the way back in episode 8. We'll be coming back to many of these features of traits in the next few months. A marker trait is a trait which has no behavior of its own. 
Instead, it is simply there to mark that certain kinds of invariants are enforced on another type. And the compiler can then require those types to implement that marker trait, that is to say that they conform to it, before it will allow certain kinds of behavior. Now, these traits are not special in that they're not restricted to language built-ins or anything like that. You can implement your own and define what things have to hold for that trait to be valid or not in your own code, and you can get the same kinds of type-checking guarantees then that Send and Sync do, even though they're part of the standard library. For an example of that, tied to the most recent episodes, Diesel actually uses a couple marker traits internally. For example, it uses them to segregate certain kinds of SQL expressions from each other, things that can't both exist at the same time in Diesel. Diesel uses marker traits so that the compiler can check, whoops, you tried to use these two together. In the standard library, there are four of these marker traits, copy, send, sized, and sync. The marker module in the standard library also includes the phantom data struct type, which is sort of the struct analogy to these traits. We've already seen copy back in episode 14's discussion of strings, and we'll come back to both sized and phantom data in the future. For today, we're just going to look again at send and sync. And there are two fundamental things you need to understand about send and sync. One, they are automatically implemented for every type they can be implemented for by the compiler. They have default implementations, which cover every type which doesn't explicitly opt out of them. So you have to explicitly opt out of them if you're doing unsafe behavior yourself, which doesn't conform to these traits. For example, if you look at the RC, the reference counting type, it expressly indicates in its type definition that it is not send or sync. It has a bang character, an exclamation point character in front of send and in front of sync to tell the compiler, I do not implement these. The second point is closely related to the first. Send and sync are unsafe traits. This means you cannot implement them in safe code. And that's fine because, of course, all your safe types will basically get them for free, as I just said. You need to write the unsafe implementations of any unsafe type machinery, which you intend to be send and sync very carefully. You have to guarantee that the relevant invariants hold. For example, that you can't get deadlocks by using this custom data type you've written. We're not going to dig further into the details of how you set up those invariants on your types today. Again, it really only matters when you're building your own implementations and those implementations cross into the part of Rust, which are necessarily in the trust me, I know what I'm doing category on safe code. Instead, we're just going to talk about what the two traits are, what they mean, and then look at how we can use them, especially using them together. You should note, though, that if you do need to implement a new low-level type, which is send or sync, the responsibility is all on you to get the implementation right, as it is with unsafe code in general. You can look forward to an episode, probably in early April, where we'll cover unsafe in some more detail. So, send and sync themselves. Send is the trait that indicates it's safe to move data across threads, and sync is the trait that indicates it's safe to share data across threads. Put another way, send is about cross-thread ownership, and sync is about cross-thread borrows. So a type T needs to be send to be handed to a cross-thread function with a signature like fn do something with a T, T, no references involved. 
A type T needs to be sync to be handed to a cross-thread function with a signature like fn do something with a T ref colon ampersand T or ampersand mute T and of course send can involve mute T etc. Once the distinction between send and sync itself is in place, the normal rules about mutability and access all apply, just like they would in a single-threaded context. So again, send is for moves, sync is for borrows, sharing. So what makes a type sendable and or syncable? For a type to be send, it just has to not do anything weird. And what I mean by that is it it has to be something that doesn't have non-atomic reference counting behavior, for example, or non-atomic shared properties underlying it. So, for example, not an RC. And if that sounds sort of hand-wavy, I'm at least in good company. The Nomicon, the rustling official book on unsafe rust, simply says, in and of itself, it is impossible to incorrectly derive send and sync. Only types that are ascribed special meaning by other unsafe code can possibly cause trouble by being incorrectly send or sync. And the details there end up getting into the behavior of raw pointers, and again, RC is a type where this comes to play and matters. Now, for more complex types, structs, enums, smart pointers around them, etc., as long as all the pieces that make up the type are also send, the type itself is also automatically send. So if any struct members or enum variants are not send, the type as a whole is not send either. But no matter how complicated or how deeply nested your type is, as long as all of its struct members and enum variants and types contained that are within the generic are all send, your type is send safe as well. As for sync, well, the briefest definition I could find or come up with just led me to quote directly from the standard library docs because they're really good. A type T is sync when the type of a reference to T, that is ampersand T, is sent. And this is why we're talking about them in the same episode. They're not just closely related conceptually, they're closely related in terms of implementation. To expand that out a bit, let's talk a little bit about string. Remember, string is a smart pointer. It's ultimately just a vec, a vector of bytes, but which has some guarantees that are enforced during construction so that you can be sure it's always valid UTF-8. And if you need to go back and brush up on strings, you can listen to episode 14, where I talked about them in some detail. When you take a reference to a string, you get an ampersand string, a reference to that string type. But most of the time, you actually get a reference to a string string slice type ampersand stir. Now, if ampersand stir or the underhood ampersand vec, which ampersand string is a special case of, were not safe for send, then string would not be sync. If a reference to a string slice were not sendable, then string would not be a sync safe type. But since string slices and references to vecs are carefully implemented by the standard library to make sure that they are thread safe, you can use them this way. You can send them right across threads, and you can send references to them right across threads. As another result of this, the same rule applies for sync types as for send types. As long as every component of the type is sync safe, so is the type itself. Again, no matter how complicated the type is. And by the same token, if any of the parts of the type are not sync safe, the type itself is not sync safe either. 
Now, of course, this isn't all there is to say. We can also combine these with other data structures and traits we've talked about in the past when we need other kinds of behavior. As usual, the strategy here is to build up our abstractions from the specific lower-level combinations of types that we need. For example, we might need a reference-counted piece of data that's shared across threads and which needs to possibly be owned by more than one thread. With today's context in mind, we now know that we can take any piece of data that's both send and sync and put it in an ARC, an atomically reference-counted smart pointer type, which we talked about briefly in an earlier episode, and then we can send it across threads. Part of what makes ARC especially useful is the guarantee we talked about just a minute ago. Any type whose contents are all send or sync are themselves automatically send or sync, and that means that any ARC which wraps a send and sync type, is itself automatically safe to use across thread boundaries. As I've mentioned before, that's not true for RC, because it's not an atomic type and it doesn't maintain the right invariance for thread safety itself. That's what makes ARC appropriate for cross-thread work and RC inappropriate for cross-thread work. Putting it back in the terms I used earlier in the episode, ARC's internal unsafe implementation maintains all the invariants we need. RC's implementation doesn't, and that's why RC specifies not send and not sync. So once you have a piece of data that is send and sync, you can use them in contexts where you're doing multi-threaded work. For a fairly easy-to-understand example of this, we can imagine processing hundreds or thousands of markdown files, for example, for a really large blog. Since every file is independent of the others, its content doesn't require the content of the others, this seems like this problem is ripe for parallelization. Now, I want to say before I dig into this example, I'm going to talk through a little bit. What I'm about to describe is very much a naive approach, and in anything remotely approaching a real-world scenario, we'd want something like a thread pool because otherwise we will totally hammer our machine. There's actually a great discussion of this in chapter 20 of the second edition of the Rust book. So if you want to see how to do this right, go look there. Props to Steve Klabnick and Carol Nichols or Golding for their write-up there. They did a great job. Listeners who have followed along with previous episodes will also note that we could just cheat this whole discussion and use Rayon for multi-threading parallelism. And in the real world, again, we should. But that wouldn't help us see how send and sync come into play more manually. So we're not going to do that. In this example of many hundreds or thousands of markdown files, we can imagine that we would have a function, something like markdown to HTML, which just takes a string buffer, an ampersand string, as its argument. We could just iterate then over a vec of strings representing the markdown file's contents and pass them to markdown to HTML in sequence. But again, we want to parallelize them. So instead, we could chunk up the vector into something like the number of processor cores on our machine. Again, real world, we just use a thread pool. And then we can iterate over those chunks. And with each of them, we can use the standard thread spawn function to spin up a new thread and pass it a closure to execute. That would read something like this. Assume we have a current markdown item named MD from iterating over that vector. Let first equals, so the first of these ones that we're iterating over, standard, colon, colon, thread, colon, colon, spawn, and then open parentheses for a function invocation. And then we'll have two pipes to indicate an argument-less closure, followed immediately by markdown to HTML, open parentheses, ampersand MD to take a reference to that markdown buffer, close parentheses for markdown to HTML, close parentheses for the thread spawn invocation, and a semicolon to wrap it all up. 
And we'd do the same thing with the others. We'd perhaps push them into some other container to look them up later or using channels, which is another structure we can talk about for communicating between threads at some point in the future. Once we'd finished iterating through everything, we'd call join on all those thread references we saved. And every time we did, we'd get back the results of that operation, the markdown to HTML. And when you call join, you get a result type. So you can say, hey, did this succeed or not? What's interesting here, though, isn't so much the standard thread APIs, though it's nice to have at least mentioned them explicitly on the show now. It's more interesting to me that all of this can be guaranteed to be thread safe by the compiler. If we tried to hand over a mutable reference to, for example, the VEC of markdown buffers itself on each pass through, we'd get the usual rust complaints about there being more than one mutable reference at the same time, no different than any other context. Likewise, if for some reason, and there are lots of times this might come up, you had wrapped each of these markdown buffers with a type which was thread unsafe, say you'd put it in a cell or a ref cell, which have non-atomic interior mutability, well, the Rust compiler would just say, nope, you can and will end up surprising yourself in a painful way with those. You'll deadlock or overwrite mutable data or something like that, so I'm not going to let you do that, playing the referee. And when that circumstance comes up, you just have to switch to another strategy. If you need that kind of interior mutability, you would need to switch to a mutex or an RW lock for read-write lock, or one of the atomic types if you're getting down into the nitty-gritty. And again, most of the time in your ordinary work, you can just use something like Rayon for this kind of trivially parallelizable code. But if you have to build your own data structures, you can. Just make sure everything is send and sync, and normally it will be. So now you hopefully have a reasonably good starting idea for how to deal with multi-threading and parallelism in Rust. And even if you're not implementing your own abstractions that require them, because you decide you are better off using one of the existing community libraries, whether that's Rayon or whether it's something like Futures and Tokyo for AsyncIO, we'll talk about that in the future, you now know the machinery that those libraries use under the hood. And that's an important part of understanding how they work and what their performance characteristics will be, and therefore determining when those tools are in fact appropriate for you. Thanks, as always, to all of this month's sponsors. Contributors who gave at least $10 included Aaron Turon, Alexander Payne, Anthony Deschamps, Chris Palmer, Christopher Gifford, Benam Esfabod, Dan Abrams, Daniel Collin, David W. Allen, Guido Hermann, Hans Fjallemark, Hendrik Solik, John Rudnick, Matt Rudder, Nathan Scully, Nick Stevens, Peter Tillemans, Olaf Leidinger, Olushei Sonaya, Rafe Levine, Shane Ut, and Vesa Kailavirta. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it around. Let others know about it. You can tell somebody in person, hey, there's a great episode about multi-threading in Rust. Or of course, you can tweet about it or otherwise share about it on social media. It also helps others find it if you rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory. And of course, if you're feeling extra generous or extra appreciative, I do appreciate everyone who sends financial support for the show. You can set up concurring you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash neurostation, or you can send a one-time contribution my way via any of a number of other services listed on the show website. There, neurostation.com, you'll also find scripts and code samples for most of the teaching episodes, including this one. There is a small example and some further commentary on it about send and sync there. You can also find transcripts for many of the interviews I've done and full show notes for every episode. 
The show is on Twitter at Neurostation. I'm there at Chris Kreitcho, and I love getting tweets from people telling me what they're learning, what's worked well, what doesn't, and so on. You can also respond in the threads on the Rust user forums, Reddit, or Hacker News, or and I say this every time, and I mean it every time, you can just shoot me an email at hello at neurostation.com. Those are my favorite. Until next time, happy coding. And that's an important port.